This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. out there in Michigan Radio Land. We're going to get started uh, right off the top with an exciting issue uh, to discuss today, and we have a special guest with us. He is State Representative David Legrand. He is a Democrat from the 75th House District, which uh, covers, I think, a major part of the city of Grand Rapids. He's an attorney. He's an ex-assistant prosecutor. I think he was a city commissioner. He can correct me if I'm wrong. And I think he owns a whole bunch of businesses over there in Grand Rapids. And uh, look, uh, sounds like a man of all seasons to me. Representative Legrand, welcome to the Political Insider. Thanks for having me, Bill. And yeah, you got it all roughly accurate. Okay. (laughs) Roughly, uh, I do that, you know, hopefully as well as possible. Uh, Let's talk about bail bond. And you are right in the middle. You are prime sponsor and or co-sponsor of a bunch of bills that have been introduced in the uh, State House of Representatives. I think there are 10 bills. They've got strong bipartisan support. Uh, I counted uh, six Democrats, five Republicans, uh, spring over these bills as co-sponsors. Maybe there are more than that. I think there are duplicate bills being introduced uh, in the Senate. Not all of them introduced yet. Uh, I see six Democrats, three Republicans over there. And uh, I'll just start out by saying uh, it's my understanding uh, that bail, the purpose of bail, uh, is to ensure that those charged uh, in a court of law but not convicted uh, will appear in court and in the process or in the meantime protect the public until a trial. But unfortunately, uh, so the supporters of this legislation contend, thousands of individuals in Michigan are held every day on bonds that they simply cannot afford to pay, meaning that they are at least temporarily incarcerated. And that is the case even uh, if there's not really a safety concern in their case, nor are they a flight risk. So I want to ask Representative Legrand uh, to address all this uh, because there's so much to talk about. We've only got about eight or nine minutes. Go ahead, Representative Legrand. That's a really good summary, Bill. Uh, yeah, thanks. The uh, the big issue, as you pointed out, is affordability. We don't want to live in a country where there's two tracks of justice. One is for the affluent and one is for the people who aren't affluent. And the population of people who are subject to bail are, as again, as you pointed out, this is very important, uh, in our country, presumed innocent until there's proof that you're guilty. Um, the problem is if you wind up in jail even for a day or two, uh, that can have a very negative influence on your life, particularly if you're not affluent. Now, if you're, you know, say you or me, and we wind up in jail for a day or two, we'd probably survive the experience. We wouldn't lose our house, we wouldn't lose our job, uh, we'd be able to clear our name and move on with our lives. But um, a lot of people, a day or two can mean the difference between keeping their job and losing their job. And of course, if you lose your job, it's a pretty quick step off into losing your housing. So for a lot of people, um, being stuck in jail is a very negative and very uh, unfortunate experience. So then the question is, you're right, who are we putting in, who are we holding? And who we should be holding is two categories, either people who are dangerous, in which case there should be a very high bond. So 
let's say you have someone who robbed a bank. Well, then if the judge sets a $100,000 bond, they're setting a very high bond, essentially thinking that, you know, there's a pretty good likelihood the person won't make it. And then if they won't make it, the, the judge has identified that person as a risk to the community. Um, and then the other category is someone who, you know, when the police show up, they're halfway through packing their suitcases to go to Venezuela. Well, that person we need to keep, too, because we want to make sure they show up for court. Um, but people who aren't an active flight risk or an active risk to the community really should have the right to go about their lives and prepare their defense and do the things that we want to be able to do. So um, our package is focused on getting judges to uh, really hone in on the criteria they're looking at for uh, flight risk or, or risk to the community, and then also really focus on how much money a person really has. And uh, when we looked into this issue, we found that, uh, unfortunately, for whatever reason, uh, there are a lot of people for whom a fairly low-dollar bond is being set, but they're not making it out. Now, no judge sets a $300 bond thinking that they're keeping the community safe with a $300 bond. What's the problem is, in case after case, is a judge will set, say, a $300 bond, and the person will only have $200 in the bank. Well, then you get all those negative effects um, for no really good reason, no really good public policy reason. And that's why we've had really had great, bi not just bipartisan, but also across the political spectrum, sort of stakeholder group support for, for our pact. So the prosecutors have been supportive. Uh, law enforcement has been engaged in the process. Every level of judge uh, uh, was supportive of this in 2018. Um, so we're going, we're going, we're bringing this back up because the package didn't make it to the across the finish line last session. But this session, we're very positive. Yeah, let me ask you uh, one question at this point: Do judges have any discretion right now under current law in where they set bond, or are their hands tied? Is it written into statute, and these bills well, might make it a little more flexible for them? Well, by and large, judges have a lot of discretion. One of our, if we want to get into some details, one of our bills gives judges more discretion on uh, a particular category of cases. But as a as a general category, judges can set whatever bond they want. They can set it high or low. What our package says is, look, we're not taking away judges' discretion, but give reasons for why you did what you did. Because, as a matter of fact, so our bill package requires judges to say on the record, you know, person X, I think you're a flight risk, or person Y, I think you're a risk to the community. And if they articulate those risks, then they can set high bonds. But otherwise, they have to really focus in, if they don't think people are a flight risk or a risk to the community, then they have to focus in on making sure that the bond is a bond the person can afford. Is one of the problems uh, that judges very often just do not realize how poor somebody may be and unable to afford bond? And Exactly. And, and, and that's ironic, but it's understandable, right? Judges make more than $100,000 a year. Um, for somebody making that level of income, a couple hundred dollars probably isn't a huge deal. Uh, and, you know, judges live, as you and I do, in a community where we have people who can help us. Um, unfortunately, a lot of America doesn't have that as their daily experience. I mean, it, it really is sad, but there's, there's studies that have indicated that, you know, more than half of our community doesn't know where they would get $500 from if they had a $500 problem. Well, those people are not, uh, they're not going to be able to get the help that they need to get out. And so they're in a very different position than a judge is. And, you know, that part of our problem with our judge, our justice system in general is it works pretty well for people who are in the middle class or people who are 
and it just doesn't work as well for the last half one. Yeah, it's my understanding that the uh, county jail population in Michigan spread out over 83 counties is about 15,000. Uh, do you have any idea what percentage of the jail population of that 15,000, if that's the correct figure, would be people uh, that fall into the categories you've been describing that really shouldn't be there uh, and wouldn't be there if they could afford bonds? Yeah, well, there are really good evidence that it may be as high as half. Uh, there are some national studies that show that it's as high as 70%, which is really shocking. Um, but even if we were to just say, you know, we, we, we don't have trust in those national figures, we don't think it's as high as 70%, there's really good evidence that it's somewhere around half. Now, maybe it's going to be 40%. But if you use that 50% number, you're talking about, what, 7,500 people? And the average length of stay in jail is somewhere between 66 and $110 a day. So if you use back-of-the-napkin math on this, um, if we could solve this problem, we could save cities and counties about $100 million a year. Now, that's not going to fix our roads. It doesn't go into the state budget, but it sure goes into the city and county budget. And uh, that's why our 10th resolution, our, our 10th part of this package is not actually a bill. It's a resolution saying, hey, look, you know, we hope this is going to save cities and counties money. Uh, so now go please spend that, spend some of those savings on law enforcement. Because there are re- there's really good data that if you want to produce better community safety, Corrections is not where you should be putting your emphasis. You should be putting it on more officers out there. Yeah, listen, we could go on and on on this subject. I'd, I'd like to find out, uh, you know, what your prospects are for passage uh, this year. But um, what do you think? Do you think you're going to get a hearing on this? Well, given that I'm on judiciary, I think I'm going to get a hearing. Uh, you know, I, I'm doing this. Is, I'm very urgent on this package. Because I'm really focused on the people who need the help. Um, but it's not over till it's over in politics, and you know that as well as I do. Right. Listen, thank you so much, Representative David Legrand from the 75th House District in Grand Rapids. You did a great job explaining the bail bond reform package. Uh, good luck, Representative Legrand. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with our special guest, former State Senator Rick Jones, who represented the 24th State Senate District. That's Eaton, Clinton, and Chiawassee counties, a little bit of Ingham County for eight years. Before that, he was three two-year terms in the House, 14 years in the legislature altogether. And he is a former sheriff, by the way, county sheriff and jail administrator. Uh, And he is uh, not happy, I would say, uh, with this package of reform bills on bail bond that is being introduced in the State House of Representatives, 10 bills and one resolution, duplicate bills in the Senate. Senator Jones, could you tell us uh, why are you opposed to this? Well, I think some reform makes sense. You know, certainly our jails have many people in that are mentally ill. Uh, and if there could be some reform for that, uh, some reform for somebody that's extremely poor or a low-level offender, I would have no problem with that. But the problem is they want catch and release. They don't want anybody to have to pay a bail bond. And what you have are multiple felony offenders who commit the vast majority of crimes. Uh, they're a very small group of people. Uh, so actually, I think the people that have committed a couple of felonies uh, really need to be out on a bail bond. Uh, if they're just released, all kinds of things happen. Uh, Texas found out that 50% of the people released 
with no bond never showed up in court. Now, it's going to cost the sheriffs and the chiefs a lot of money to go out and try to catch these people and bring them to justice. Some of them will have to be extradited. If there is a bail bond, you have a system in place where the, the bail bondsman does everything they can to encourage people to show up to court. And if somebody does take off, you have bounty hunters that can hopefully bring these people in. Uh, you know, we, we need to be very careful going into this. Uh, New Jersey, New Mexico, Alaska, and Texas have all tried it. And uh, my understanding is uh, at least three of those states are in the process of changing what they've done. Well, uh, they claim, this is the, the sponsors of the package, that uh, under their bills, uh, defendants still would be considered dangerous to the community or themselves, the ones that are the serious felons, as you described, as well as those deemed unlikely to attend court hearings. They would still receive high bail bond or be jailed without the possibility of pretrial release. Apparently, they're trying to make some distinction between really serious, felonious offenders uh, or people that are untrustworthy in terms of whether they would show up in court on the one hand and people who just simply don't have the financial wherewithal to pay the bond on the other. Does that make sense to you? Well, I think that's what they're saying, but what they're doing, if I'm reading the bills correctly, is creating a system where every bail setting will be a contested hearing. So it's going to cost additional dollars to bring in prosecutors, witnesses in a contested hearing. I I don't think that's going to work. Uh, I also question their savings. You know, they say, well, if you get somebody out of jail, you can save a lot of money. I'm a former jail administrator. Let's look at how how do we decide what it costs for an inmate? Well, the bean counters basically look at all the costs, heating and cooling, uh, the number of officers that have to be employed to uh, watch the inmates and take care of their daily needs. The problem is, unless you could shut down half of a jail and lay actually lay people off, where are you saving money? You know, if I'm running a jail with 300 people and, and you say, hey, we're going to get 20 people out, that really isn't saving me anything. I'm still going to have all those costs built in. So I, I don't see their savings. Uh, I, I think it's a, a panacea, and, and I'm very nervous about it. I, I'm hoping that they take this on very slowly and really examine each element. Uh, I don't want dangerous people back out of the state, great state of Michigan. Yeah, well, let's let's go back to your days as jail administrator in Eaton County when you were a sheriff. I mean, what was kind of like an average jail population for you there? Uh, my In my time, uh, I actually had a lot of empty space. Uh, and so what I did is I actually rented out space to other counties that had overcrowding and generated uh, income for the county of Eaton. Uh, and it worked very well because the jail operates better if it's you know running at, uh, say, 95% capacity than it does if it's running at 50%. They'll have all of the costs. What percentage of people at a particular time, you were sheriff, what, like from the mid-90s till uh, like 2004, 5? Yes, uh, 2001, 2, 3, and 4 uh, for four years as a sheriff. Uh, 
I don't believe it was anywhere near the 41% that they're speaking, uh, that supposedly they found in some national survey or something. That, that seems extremely high to me. Uh, of course, I'd have to go back and examine records from a few years back to, to say for certain, but I can tell you from experience there's many reasons that different people don't get out of jail. One, one could be the family knows they're, they're mentally ill, they're going to get back into trouble, and they leave them there hoping they will get some treatment. You know, other reasons are the guy knows he's going to be found guilty, and he just decides, hey, I'm just going to stay here. I'm not going to bother leaving because uh, what's the use of going out and, and maybe finding employment or something? I'll start my time right now. I know I'm going to get convicted. That happens because uh, the judges always consider time served. Well, let's say that the percentage of people in your jail in Eaton County was only half of what the sponsors of this legislation is claiming. They say 41 percent. You think that's too high. Let's say it was only 20 percent or 15. Uh, If those people didn't have to be jailed uh, because they couldn't postpone, you would have had, in other words, that many more empty bunks. And you probably would have then uh, been able to get more people from other counties who had overcrowding problems uh, into your jail cells with revenue from those counties to pay for them, right? You know, it sounds good. But again, <laughs> uh, I I get very nervous about uh, people just uh, being uh, catch and release. Uh, we catch the bad guy, uh, gets out for nothing. Uh, he doesn't have a serious motivation to return to court. And in the meantime, what's he doing out in the state of Michigan? Is, is he committing more crimes, or causing more trouble? I, I think it's we have to look at this very, very carefully. This is a system that works. Uh, I have actually seen people brought back by bounty hunters. It, it's a system that was created uh, many, many years ago. It's constitutional, and, and I think it works. Has it been amended uh, slowly but surely over the years to address maybe little issues or problems that have come up over time? Um, Or is this maybe the first real look by legislators here in Michigan anyway at this whole issue of bail bond as it relates to particularly county jails? What do you think? I think this is the the latest thing. The last couple of years, uh, they say we're going to have all this reform. It's going to save all this money. Uh, let's look at it. Uh, it, it there's a rush uh, to put in bills. Uh, thinking we're going to save a fortune. I, I'd say be very, very cautious. I, I think you're going to cost a great deal of money. You know, we have to uh, go extradite somebody from another state. There's a cost to that. Uh, there's a cost going out and, and picking people up and bringing them back. And uh, Some counties don't have a lot of resources to do that. Uh, I think we're at the end of our segment. Unfortunately, we could keep talking about this. Uh, I imagine if these bills come up for hearing and committee, you'll be there to testify, right? Uh, I would love to give my uh, expert witness testimony uh, on my experience. Yes. Well, thank you very much, former State Senator Rick Jones, former Eaton County Sheriff Rick Jones, former Jail Administrator Rick Jones, uh, who is now not a member of the legislature, unfortunately, because of term limits. He was termed out at the end of last year. Thank you so much, Senator Rick Jones. Have a great day. Thank you. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. 
We are back, and we've got another special guest. She is Representative Pamela Hornberger, and she represents a district, if I'm not mistaken. She can correct me. I think it's got three cities, Memphis, New Baltimore, and Richmond. She's got eight townships spread spread over two counties, uh, northeastern Macomb and St. Clair counties. Is that correct, Representative Pamela Hornberger? That is Yes, that is correct. I have um, northern Macomb right along Lake St. Clair and then a a big piece of St. Clair County all the way up um, past I-69 into uh, the Port Huron area. Right, and you're a former teacher. I think you were an art teacher, right? Yeah, I taught elementary art for 20 years, and then my last two and a half years I taught middle school and high school art in the East China School District right over way on the east side of the state along the water, St. Clair and Marine City. And uh, also, um, you were a school board member, weren't you? Correct. I live in the Lance Cruz Public Schools, and I served on the Lance Cruz Public School Board from 2010 until 2016 when I resigned to join the legislature. Um, Yeah, it's a pretty pretty interesting gig, school board. Yeah, now this is your second term, correct? Yep, beginning of my second term. And the most important thing I should mention is that you are the chairperson, chair, chairwoman, whatever you want to call it, of the House Education Committee, right? Correct. I'm the chairperson of the House Education Committee, and um, I am lucky enough to also serve as the vice chair of the K-12 Appropriations Committee. Okay, well, I want to just ask you about a lot of these issues in no particular order, like standardized testing, uh, teacher evaluation, snow day policies, which were important this year uh, with our extreme cold winter we had here in Michigan, third grade reading. uh, (laughs) So many issues. Yeah, so many issues. Well, which one or which ones do you think are most important that you think you're going to be addressing in your committees? Probably the one that's going to be top of mind for everyone right now, especially people in the education community, is the Snow Days bill. So it was um, a bill introduced by Representative Fredericks, HB 4206, and um, it would allow for the state superintendent to give an additional waiver to districts for um, state emergency days. Um, We did pass it out of um, the education committee. And we're waiting for a hearing in the um, uh, Ways and Means Committee, which is, you know, a, a new addition to our process. So we're just waiting for a um, committee hearing there and um, hoping that we can have some resolution to the issue. I know superintendents and teachers have been wondering, are we going to have to go to school till the end of June or into July based on the number of days that they've already taken off? And hopefully we can rectify some of that soon. Yeah, I mean, explain this a little bit more to the public. I mean, exactly what's the problem right now? In other words, if you have too many snow days that are called, it just causes real problems with the budget or what? Yeah, you, so um, you, um, districts are allowed six days, and um, six, six days that they can call for whatever reason, you know, if they're, if they're bad roads or it's snowing or, or there's a plumbing issue in a building. And then they can also apply for three additional waiver days, and that those are granted by the state superintendent. 
Well, then and, uh, when those are granted, does that mean that they have to make those up at the end of the school year? Is that it? No, those additional three they would not have to make up. Okay. What so, this bill covers are the emergency days that were called by the governor for the entire state, and it allows districts to apply for a waiver for those days. And if, um, if in fact, the state superintendent finds that they were not able to have school those days, then um, they would be granted the waiver for those additional days. And I believe this school year so far there have been five state emergency days total. Well, now, does that mean um, that the district doesn't get funding for those days? Uh, no, it means they would get funding for those days. Okay. Now, any additional day beyond the um, waiver days and beyond their six days that, they, um, that they've that they missed and they do not make up, they would not receive funding for. So they are required to make up any additional days. Okay. So when you say uh, make up, that is when they would have to have additional days at the end of the school year to make up. Correct. And and that's what this bill that you just described addresses. It would what allow them to have maybe as many additional days as they need if if disaster strikes and we have ten no, snow not days. As they, it would allow them if there's a state of emergency called by the governor and it affects their district and they cannot have school. It would allow them to apply for a waiver, which would then have to be granted by the state superintendent. Okay. So, so with, with five days that were called as state emergency days this year, um, I think total total districts would be allowed this year would be 14 if they received all the waivers. Okay. And, and then wasn't there some controversy about school uh, janitorial personnel and other people claiming uh, yes. they somehow <laughs> are not going to be paid? Yes. And- During- yeah, during our, our deliberation process and committee, there were some amendments offered um, by my Democratic colleagues that would have um, would have allowed or would have would have forced all of the districts to pay any employees, uh, contract employees, that um, in their contract, if it states that they don't get paid on a snow day or um, an act of God day, as they're sometimes called in contracts that um, the state would force districts to um, to pay those people. So there was a little bit of a, some discussion about that. Um, it, the waivers, those um, amendments ended up not passing. Um, I think a lot of us looked at it from the viewpoint that it, it's not our, it wasn't our place to get involved in a bargaining agreement between the superintendents and, um, say, their parapros or, or um, bus drivers. Those would be some of the people that might not get paid if there's a, a snow day. So, um, yeah, the amendments failed, but the bill did ultimately pass out of committee on a partisan vote. All of my Democrat colleagues voted no. So um, we're waiting for it to get through Ways and Means and see what happens there. Are there districts in the state right now that do have uh, in their collective bargaining agreements at the local level uh, some accommodation for these employees, and in that case, there wouldn't be a problem, right? Right. For some employees, they do, and it varies by district. Um, some districts, I know in uh, Lance Cruz at one point when I was on the board, um, 
they, there was a number of snow days. If it was the secretaries or the parapro union or the bus drivers union, there were a number of snow days. Maybe the first two they wouldn't get paid for, and after that they would, um, or the or vice versa. The first two they would get paid for, and after that they wouldn't. So um, every district has something different. Some of them pay you. Some of them pay their employees. Some of them don't for snow days. Um, and we felt that it wasn't our place to get involved in those contracts, that negotiation, because we don't know, or we didn't at the time, obviously, what a um, union received, you know, to negotiate away those snow days. So we didn't feel it was our place to get involved in that. Right. Um, I want to ask you also about um, third grade reading. I think we're running short on time in this segment. So let's take a short break, and we'll come back and talk about third-grade reading and maybe uh, also teacher evaluation and standardized testing. Representative Pam Hornberg, we'll be back. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Representative Pamela Hornberger from the 32nd House District. That is in northeastern Macomb County, part of St. Clair County. Got a lot of townships, eight townships, three cities, Memphis, New Baltimore, and Richmond. She's chairwoman, chairperson of the House Education (laughs) Committee. And we talked about uh, snow day policies on the first segment. I just want to ask you very quickly, third grade reading proficiency. I don't even know if a bill has been introduced about that this year, but uh, Governor Whitmer has indicated that she's not necessarily that happy with the law that was enacted uh, a couple of years ago uh, requiring uh, students to achieve third grade reading proficiency or be held back a year Um, and she thinks it makes it very difficult for students uh, to meet that test who have not been given adequate help and instruction to bring them up to speed so she's asked for more money in the budget to do that Um, and representative aaron miller on our show last week indicated that sounded like a pretty good idea to him uh, although he is a big champion of third grade reading proficiency and making sure students are able to read uh, as they graduate from third grade. So I'm just asking you, what what is your attitude on all this? And what do you think the legislature may do with Gretchen Whitmer's budget proposal? Well, I'd like to see the third grade reading bill play itself out. I'd like to see us to get at least four years um, through the process to see how this is going to work out. There are many, many stopgap measures in place in the bill to um, keep students from being retained. It, there are many allowances that can be made on the part of parents and teachers and um, administrators. So um, by the time um, next fall that this comes about, I think that we should have something solid in place and students shouldn't be Um, being held back. I do agree that it would be wonderful to have more um, literacy coaches. 
helping teachers help kids. I believe that we do need to spend money in that area. Um, I I wouldn't say just throw money at the problem. I'd like to see it designated. If we're going to put some um, literacy coaches in place, I want to make sure that they have the qualifications that they need and the experience that they need to be able to go in and help teachers um, help kids. Representative, there's another bill, uh, 4162, I think it is, uh, introduced by Representative Riley uh, that I think is in your committee that you're interested in. Can you explain what that's all about? Sure, sure. I believe it's an excellent bill. It's um, uh, House Bill uh, 4162. It is a bill that would make the work keys test optional. It's a pretty timely discussion since all of our um, 11th graders that will be going back to high school after spring break will be taking that test the week after break. Um, WorkKeys is a a screener, um, a basic HR or CTE screener um, offered by or provided by um, ACT, the former testing company that was in Michigan. Representative Riley would like to make it optional. We had bipartisan support coming out of committee. Um, We have the support of, I would dare to say, probably 99% of the high school teachers and administrators in the state. Um, It's gone through the Ways and Means Committee, which was pretty eye-opening. After coming out of education on a bipartisan, um, with a bipartisan vote, supported, even some of the co-sponsors are uh, Democrats that are on the Education Committee. Um, Once it got to Ways and Means, there were quite a few questions, and it was pretty eye-opening. So that that will be a process all in in itself that will have to work itself out. Um, But I'm I'm hoping that we can get support for that. It was um, it's a good bipartisan win, and it's a good win for educators and for uh, for the students in our state. Well, that word testing is something I just want to ask you about. Is there too much testing going on in school right now? And what about standardized tests uh, in general? I mean, what is your viewpoint on all that? You were on a school board. You were an art teacher yeah. for two decades. I was, you know, it's it's funny that you ask that. I was asked during Ways and Means um, because there there opposition that wants to keep this test in place and keep it mandated. Um, one of the representative representatives asked me, would I be interested in doing away with all testing? And my answer was yes. Unless it's necessary and it's providing some valuable information to inform instruction, to help teachers um, figure out what they need to be teaching better or figure out which kids aren't on track, I don't think it's necessary. And I think that you will see, um, and we have seen a lot of even colleges on their entrance um, on their entrance applications are moving away from any testing at all. Um, I know my daughter is in 11th grade right now, and she's been um, going on some college tours. And a few of, especially the smaller colleges, they want to interview you. They want to get to know you. They want you to be active, you know, to participate in things on campus, to see how you're going to fit in. So that's part of their process when they're going through college applications. Um, So, some colleges are moving away from looking at those standardized test scores. That's it's amazing. kind of refreshing. Yeah, I would say it is refreshing because the trend has all been in the other direction over the last couple of decades, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it is a fine line. I mean, as, as a state, when we spend money, we want to know that we're getting our money's worth, that kids are being educated, that they're actually being taught and learning things that they need to learn in order to get through life. But then there's that 
you know, too, too much testing is just, it's, it's arduous and it's, it's just not good for kids. It's not good for teachers. And quite frankly, it's damaging to the learning process when we're, when we have teachers that are just teaching to the test in order to survive. Now, let me ask you, uh, we've seen all these studies and surveys. Um, I've seen too many of them that show Michigan lagging compared to the rest of the country in our educational achievement in our K-12 school system. And most of these studies or surveys are all premised on tests and testing. And and I'm just curious, do you think Michigan has somehow gotten a bad rap and reputation for being uh, not, you know, proficient in teaching students and our students in learning uh, that is being misrepresented by these test scores? Um, you know, it's hard to say. It, it really is hard to say. I think one of the biggest issues with our Michigan education system and us being at the bottom is that we have um, a Department of Education that's not accountable. Um, when the governor takes office and we have a new governor now, they are they have the ability to appoint new heads of all the departments and, and new people in each department. And in the Michigan Education, uh, Michigan Department of Education, that doesn't happen. The Michigan Department of Ed is the only department in our state that is not accountable to the governor or the legislature. Well, that's because, let me explain, uh, the superintendent <laughs> of public schools in Michigan is picked by the State Board of Education, which right. is elected statewide, elected. And, right. And uh, there, it's an eight-member board, and uh, yep. it's separate from the governor and the legislature. Right. And I think possibly that's where the disconnect is and why education in our in our state is failing. There's a huge disconnect in not having accountability in, in legislators who sometimes know nothing about education coming in and trying to pass laws that they think are going to fix something. The laws, once it's passed, goes over to the department. The department interprets it and does whatever they want with it. And hence, we end up with tests like MSTEP. Um, which I don't think was the intent of the legislature when that law was passed. Um, and, and, and we just spiral and keep spiraling from there. So you really think that the real problem is with the State Board of Education being an elected body, appointing the superintendent, there's a disconnect between the Department of Education run by that superintendent and the board <laughs> Separate from the legislature and the governor. The legislature and the governor can't really uh, relate and, to it. And as a conservative, I can tell you years ago, without being, um, years ago as compared to now being just right in the middle of it, I would never have said that. I was. I would always have been the person who had said, "No, we we need we need voters to be able to elect those people. You know, we need to have voter accountability. We need that." But there is such a huge disconnect between even what the the, the school board is doing, the state school board is doing, and the state state superintendent is doing, and what's actually going on in that um, bureaucratic quagmire that is the Michigan Department of Education. Well, there, that, are, there are. Don't get me wrong. There are really good, some really good people over there, but there are so many disconnects that it is it is damaging to our education system in the state of Michigan. You've kind of come to feel that way since you arrived in the legislature. Is that really what's you know sharpened your change of heart about that? Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. I, well, could, I could talk for days about I know. I, I can tell. I can tell. I wish we had more time. I mean, we could go on forever. There's so much to talk about. Listen, you've been a great guest, uh, Representative Pamela Hornberger of the 32nd House District, Chair of the House Education Committee. Thank you very much, Representative Hornberger. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Thank Have you. Have a good day.